When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. I believe that uh, in February and March of 2020, we knew exactly who was most at risk from COVID. It was our seniors over the age of 60 with severe and multiple comorbidities. In fact, we saw worldwide that 95% of all deaths up to the middle of March 2020 were in seniors with severe comorbidities. So instead of protecting our seniors, which should have been our number one aim, and not using non-pharmaceutical interventions, as had been clearly stated in our plans, we did exactly the opposite. And that was because our premiers took one look at what was happening in China and Italy, and they panicked. Hey there, I'm hard at work on another edition of Inner Sanctum, my free monthly newsletter. Inner Sanctum features my monthly brief, a column of my thoughts and opinions on what's happening in the world. It features a spotlight on a past guest, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. It features a look at this month in conspiracy and UFO history and my Conspiracy Unlimited podcast episode pick of the month and so much more. To get your free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, delivered to your email inbox, just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on Inner Sanctum and register. It's fast, easy, and again, absolutely free. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Later this hour, I'll speak with the former head of Alberta's Emergency Management Agency, who will explain how governments across Canada did the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do in response to the pandemic. He calls it criminal negligence. David Redman will be here. He's worked with all orders of government and extensively with the private sector to develop emergency management in Alberta, Canada and North America. And prior to his work with EMA, he had a 27-year career as an officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. So you'll want to be listening a little bit later this hour when Dave Redman joins me. While only rarely discussed and frequently dismissed as a mere curiosity, the mystery of the disappearance of the disappearing flu is actually one of the most important events of the past two years. Unpacking this mystery provides deep insights into the future trajectory of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, exposes the abject failure of the vaccines to control the pandemic, and puts the final nail in the coffin 
on futile public health measures like masks and social distancing. Get ready for more than a few surprises as you follow me on another deep dive into COVID mayhem. Julius Ruchel is author of uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble, and the COVID Zero Con, and this new investigative report, The False God of Central Planning, The Mysterious Reappearance of the Flu, Natural versus Vaccine-Induced Immunity, The Inability of the Vaccines to Control the Virus, and Other Extraordinary Lessons About the End of the Pandemic. Julius, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Great. That's a, that's a lengthy title, but very, uh, very insightful. All right. So let's begin. What, what did happen to the, uh, the seasonal flu these last two years? Well, that's one of the remarkable things about it is that I think it was around March is that it essentially just completely disappeared all around the world. And I mean, there's been lots of speculation as to whether it's being whether the the flu is COVID, but the actual flu tests continued without stopping. Um, It's just that they they all came back negative. And so uh, but there's a a phenomenon in that's called viral displacement or viral interference, where when you have an infection with one um, virus, that it essentially blocks infections with other viruses. And so uh, that seems to be playing a huge role because it is a fairly new um, it's a, it's a novel virus. Our immune systems aren't uh, used to this thing. So it's had such a huge outsized effect on our immune systems on so many people that that viral interference effect has essentially you know, squeezed out the ability for all of these other uh, viruses that are usually part of seasonal flu season to, uh, to infect us. And why, is that, why is that important then? Okay, so it's important because, well, as you mentioned in, in your introduction, I mean, one of the things that it shows is that like the like the masks and all of those things are not actually responsible for the disappearance of the flu because the, the flu disappeared around uh, the 30th of March. And here in Canada, the first mask recommendation didn't come in until the 20th of May and it didn't become mandatory until the, uh, I think, the 18th of July. So like the, when the health authorities are taking responsibility for that, that's not what's causing it. It's viral interference that caused that. Um, but what's interesting is when you start going through all of the different uh, countries, you can see now that the flu is starting to come back. And that shows you when and the natural antibodies that from exposure are reaching a level where the flu is no longer, where COVID is no longer able to uh, um, have such a strong effect on our, our immune systems. And that's what allows the flu then to come back into the, the you know, to start to circulate. So in countries that have high natural immunity, like Sweden, like uh, South Africa, like Brazil, India, they've all got the flu back, whereas in Canada, it's not. And they're all reaching it, like once they cross around, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent of the population that has some kind of antibodies to COVID, that's when the flu comes back. And in many of those places, it's before they've even reached... uh, um, any kind of high level of vaccination. Like in Sweden, deaths essentially plateaued uh, somewhere around, uh, I believe it was, uh, when did I write down here? I think it was early, like early last spring, Mar- March last year. And they've essentially stayed fairly flat ever since because that's the point where they had the high natural immunity and now the flu is back there. And why do those countries you mentioned, Sweden, Brazil, South Africa, India, why do they, I think you mentioned Brazil, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, why do they have natural immunity? Well, the virus has been able to circulate so freely there, like the COVID virus has been able to circulate so freely that everybody has essentially been exposed to it. I mean, this is one of the the big uh, 
um, like the, the silly parts of this whole COVID debacle is everybody looks at COVID cases based on PCR tests. But when you actually do antibody tests to see who has antibodies, the vast majority of people in these countries already have been exposed to this and developed antibodies without ever developing any kind of symptoms and without going and getting a PCR test. And South I mean, Africa had relatively low vaccine uptake, as I recall. That's right. Yeah. Julius Reuschel is the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble and the COVID Zero Con. He's also the author of a new investigative report titled The False God of Central Planning. Why do you call it the God of Central Planning? Uh, The 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 False false God. God. Sorry, the False God of Central Planning. Um, because again, the, the, the government has essentially stepped in and claimed to be able to manage this entire pandemic and everything that surrounds it. And yet, you know, looking through, for example, when, with the flu disappearance and all of these different parts that have, have featured in this piece, the government essentially has been irrelevant to managing this pandemic. And that the, the countries that are actually now faring very well, like a country like Sweden, they're, they've essentially pulled through it without doing any of these control measures that have tried to, you know, control every single step of what we're allowed and not allowed to do. And yet, you know, the, you know, the flu has essentially come back because the virus has already moved through the population and their death rates are no different than neighboring countries like, uh, like Germany that try so another- to control everything. So if I'm understanding this, Julius, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, yeah. the, the disappearance of the flu and then the reappearance of the flu is kind of a harbinger. So explain yes. what, uh, explain again the lesson here of the reappearance of the flu. Okay, so the reappearance of the flu is essentially signaling that the, uh, the COVID virus is no longer able to uh, displace these other seasonal viruses. So it's no longer having this outsized effect on our immune system that's able to block infections with these other things. So like, for example, in, in Sweden, um, the, the only difference between Sweden and Germany is that, you know, they have the same variants, they have the same vaccination rates, all of those things. But the difference is that the virus is able to circulate freely. And so in Sweden, the, the uh, flu is now back and deaths from COVID are essentially flat compared to uh, a country like Germany, where they've had much higher deaths still and they don't have the high immunity and the flu is not back in Germany. And the flu returned to Sweden because uh, the Omicron uh, vi- virus is so mild, it can no longer displace the flu. Is that the idea? It's actually, no, it's actually something different because, uh, for example, Delta also moved through Sweden and Germany at the same time. And so in Germany, Delta was fairly deadly and in Sweden, it was not. So the main difference between the two of them was that Sweden had the high natural immunity because the virus had already circulated so much. Right. And so that's where the, the, the difference here is not just that Omicron is milder, but that countries that have you know, high natural immunity, sure, they can still get infected, but it's not going to land people in the hospital or in a grave nearly as easily. OK, so what's happening in Canada? You call it a test case for Omicron. Yes, because Canada was one of the first countries where you've got a high vaccinated population that was exposed to Omicron because like in Sweden and Germany, it was still Delta when uh, when Omicron was arriving in other places. So, you know, here we've got a, a, a situation where, you know, is Omicron mild or is Omicron mild like in, in South Africa because they have natural immunity? Because our natural immunity is very, very low because of our, our strict measures in Canada. So Omicron arrived here and we've seen like, I mean, yes, the hospital rates have gone up and so have uh, deaths, but not in a very large amount, considering the huge scale of people that are now getting infected with this thing. And we're also seeing that a lot of the folks that are being infected, um, 
the, 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 the statistics that are coming out of the hospitals and out of, and all of that, it's not necessarily that they're in hospital with COVID. They're actually there and then they have a PCR test that's positive. I think Ontario said 50% of their, uh, their hospitalizations are actually incidental. They were admitted to be treated for something else and then have a, had a positive PCR test. So it's kind of showing, thankfully, that Omicron is mild even in populations like ours that haven't had much exposure and not just like in South Africa or Sweden that have. Julius, uh, I mean, unless I'm missing something from your bio, you're not an immunologist or a virologist. You're a cattle rancher. You're an author. How is it that you were able to make this observation? I'm not reading this anywhere else. <laughs> I started writing about all this COVID stuff in the in the spring. Like I had a, a website where I was teaching uh, some you know cattle uh, uh, farming practices. Um, and so I'm used to dipping into all of this kind of stuff. I have a background in geology, so I'm, you know, I understand statistics and that sort of stuff. And so I've just been digging into the raw data. It's, I mean, I'm looking at the government's raw data here. I'm not, uh, you know, pulling all, any of these statistics off of anything else other than, you know, what's purely official put out by the statistics departments, but which is at odds with what the uh, public health officials are saying in the media. Uh, now, when we're talking about uh, COVID, you say, you know, uh, new virus, but same role it's playing, uh, particularly yes. with the elderly. We used to call pneumonia an old person's best friend because it would take them quickly and, uh, you know, usually painlessly. That's right. So it, uh, talk to me more about uh, the, the COVID's role, uh, old role as the old man's friend. If you look at the in Canada, the year over year, all cause mortality. The number of folks that have passed away is essentially the same. And so what you see then from that is that essentially the same people that would have been dying normally from influenza and other seasonal viruses in the winter are now dying from COVID. So COVID has essentially pushed out the flu and is playing that exact same role of getting people that are in nursing homes or that are near the end of their life or have extreme vulnerabilities uh, like because of pre-existing conditions. And, I mean, we see that very clearly in the epidemiology data. There's something like a thousand-fold difference in risk between somebody that's, you know, young and healthy versus somebody that's living in an old folks' home, right? So they, they, just like uh, influenza, the folks that are at risk from this thing are the folks that are already at risk from influenza and other seasonal viruses. They're folks that have immune systems that are weak and essentially shutting down at the end of life. Right. And we finally, finally, after two years, had the uh, the director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, uh, hide out on a, uh, a Sunday chat show where nobody watches to finally admit uh, that uh, up to 75 percent of all COVID deaths in the United States were uh, with COVID uh, and up to four serious comorbidities. Julius Rochelle is uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble and the COVID Zero Con. How can people read the full report? If they come to my website at uh, www.juliusruchel.com, everything is there. All right. And we'll spell it. Uh, it's Julius. And then Ruchel is R-U-E-C-H-E-L. R-U-E-C-H-E-L. Juliusruchel.com. One of the big mistakes uh, that was made, you say, is is totally underestimating how uh, how many people were exposed to SARS-CoV-2. That's you right. give the example, actually, of white-tailed deer in the state of Iowa. Explain. It's extraordinary, actually, that the last winter, uh, I guess through the various hunters and whatnot that, are, that were harvesting deer, they started doing PCR tests to kind of get a, a survey of what the deer population, how many of them had been exposed to COVID. And 80% of them already had exposure during that one winter. 
I mean, it, it really shows you how quickly this virus will, you know, spread through an entire population. And yet the forests there were not f- filled with coughing and dying deer. So, again, it, the vast majority of them are just fine and were probably asymptomatic, but now have antibodies and had some kind of exposure. Okay. And so because our public health officials and politicians were unable to sort of appreciate this point, how quickly it spreads, uh, what's the takeaway then? The takeaway is that, you know, what should have happened last year, like in 2020, or not last year, but two years ago, is that the, the vulnerable population should have been advised to voluntarily isolate themselves for the, the first big wave that came through and allowed the rest of us who are not going to be likely to have any kind of severe outcomes to be exposed to this thing, have our, you know, asymptomatic or mild flu that, you know, it's playing the same role of, of a seasonal flu or similar to a seasonal flu virus, and then most people would have had antibodies and that would have starved the virus of hosts so that the vulnerable would have been able to get back to their lives and not have to worry about sheltering and hiding away. But instead, they've essentially been you know, trapped away from society at risk for two years because the rest of us were not able to get exposed to this thing. In other words, they did everything wrong. Exactly. And I mean, the idea of waiting for these vaccines has been insane because, as I said, like it made everybody have to wait for two years that's vulnerable. And as we're seeing now, the vaccines are actually not what's causing the, the like, I mean, look at, you know, Germany versus Sweden, where Germany is having high, had high issues with the Delta virus, despite high vaccination rates. And Sweden, which had high natural immunity, had no, no more dying anymore because they allowed the virus to circulate freely. So this, the idea of this, this uh, vaccine being the savior, the exit out of this whole entire disaster has been actually the, the cause of a huge amount of unnecessary suffering and hasn't achieved anything. Well, here's the frustrating part, Julius, and the tragic part yeah. is, is all of the 10 provinces and three territories, they had a pandemic uh, emergency pr- uh, pandemic plan in yes. place. Uh, and all of them, every single province and every territory through those perfectly good plans, which talk about things like focus protection. They talk about, um, you know, protecting the vulnerable, vulnerable, but maintaining societal cohesion and keeping things open and keeping the economy open. Uh, they were thrown out the window. Why do you suppose they did that? You know, I, I think it began with a hysteria that everybody just absolutely panicked and threw out. I mean, at, at the heart of this is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that when you have individual autonomy, that be pri- provides a hard limit on how far the government can go in a panic situation. But that should have been the, the last check and balance. This is, well, you can recommend things to us, but you can't take away our rights. Because the moment that you do that, you stop the, the, the discussion that would have been able to solve this, to, to sort of diffuse the panic and get people to, from different points of view to be able to speak about things. Instead, that was tossed out the window. And you know, there's this entire, you know, there's kind of an idea that's been growing more and more that the government is meant to manage everything in all of life. And they've, you know, they injected that idea into the, the management of this pandemic as well, where they tried to, you know, control everything and save the world. And in the process, they made a real hash of it. Saskatchewan has finally uh, come around. Uh, they're going to drop the mandates, all mandates by the end of February. Here in Ontario, our, uh, our premier is doubling and tripling down, uh, much like the vaccine. Uh, if you were sitting around the science table, and, you know, just spending 15 minutes with me, it's very clear to me, a cattle rancher and an author, uh, you have far more common sense uh, than any of the people sitting around the science table. What would you advise the premier to do at this point? They have to drop everything. I mean, it, 
ultimately, Section 1 of our Constitution says you cannot take away people's rights uh, without, uh, you know, an actual in front of a court weighing of the evidence to justify it. And that's never been done. So from a legal standpoint, this all just needs to collapse instantly. Um, but as far as the, from a management point of view, like, the rest of us need to go about our lives and the, the folks that are vulnerable need to voluntarily based on their own assessment of risks and priorities, be advised to shelter at home until each of like these waves last, you know, six to eight weeks at most. We're already, things are already starting to come down here now with Omicron. Like let them know, stay away from folks for, for a few more weeks, and then we can all go back to our lives. And so that, you know, the focus needs to be protecting those, those that small percentage of the population that really is vulnerable because we know who they are. And I mean, they have an outsized, like, you know, a thousand times more risk risk than the rest of us they need to be and then they already many of them are already in a nursing home behind the wall like you just have to close the the doors in many cases like in previous flu waves you actually have the option of having the the caregivers that are there live inside the nursing home so that the doors just do not open so that's how like, they already have a lockdown that's permanently in place that really is enforceable by closing the door and leaving it closed so I think that's that's the, the point that has been missed by our, our health authorities that have managed us instead of the, the vulnerable. Cattle ranchers and truckers, if only you could run this country. Julius Ruchel, juliusruchel.com, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, R-U-E-C-H-E-L.com. Are you still an organic beef farmer? No, I, I've been uh, writing about it since I left the industry, but uh, like I've been uh, managing a website where I've been teaching uh, pasture-focused cattle farming. Ah, okay. So... Um, it's interesting that you bring this up because we had the announcement from Premier Jason Kenney and Scott Moe and others that they are uh, winding down the mandates. They always talk about, you know, a path to ending the mandates and a plan to end the mandates. Uh, and now, you know, at least, you know, they're, they're, they're ditching the mask mandates in Alberta, Saskatchewan. Um, but as you say, they are also normalizing um, you know, their emergency emergency powers and government overreach. Talk to me about that. Well, one of the, like in a democracy, like the basic democracy, basically the 90% can vote the 10% into slavery. But the difference between a democracy and a liberal democracy is that the, uh, the individual rights of citizens are placed above the authority of government. So they are not negotiable by, you know, policies and public health uh, officials. They, they essentially, they provide a hard limit as to what uh, government can do to people without their consent. And so by, uh, by normalizing that there's some kind of path back to normal, we're actually normalizing that this was okay for the government to suspend our constitutional rights for two years, despite the fact that constitutional rights have to be uh, unconditional in order for democracy to function. Uh, in fact, I believe uh, Quebec Premier Legault, uh, you know, said that, it's, that he will get rid of the mandates on one condition, and that is he wants those powers to remain That's so right. that it would be, in fact, much easier for him to evo- invoke some sort of emergency uh, power. Very much so. See, that's the thing is that there's, there's beyond the fact that the, like the individual rights are the uh, like essential for us each individually to manage all the, the risks that are in our own life that go beyond COVID, which you know, we've all experienced that now where we haven't had that opportunity for two years to manage anything in our life and where somebody can take away our right, like our access to our life. But the other part of it too is that you know, if someone has the right to tell you 
that you have to follow these mandates that violate your civil liberties. They can settle the debate with a mandate instead of uh, trying to talk to you, instead of being transparent with the data and being forced to, to confront their critics. And so I think that's like the, the, when when the mandates rolled out in March of 2020, at that point, we saw all the debate and all the transparency that's supposed to be at the heart of our democracy, like just essentially evaporate. All of a sudden, the politicians, they could, you know, they could allow you to speak in a corner somewhere, but they could still force you to do something. So they haven't actually been forced to to uh, to face their critics and, and face and be transparent about the data that they're working off of. And the same thing goes for the scientific institutions. Like the moment that you make rights uh, conditional, the public health authorities and, and the scientists haven't had to face any of the critics that are pointing out mistakes that these people are making. So individual rights are actually the, the, the cornerstone of a functioning democracy that forces everybody that participates in the system to be transparent and to engage with critics. Like it prevents people from hiding in an echo chamber because all of a sudden they have to talk to those people that don't agree with them if they want them to play along with their rules. Have you heard anything from any of the premiers when they were announcing the end to these mandates uh, to suggest that they were also willing to give up these emergency powers? Well, each one of them is talking about, you know, either Omicron is mild or they talk about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe the, the, the benefits outweigh the risks. And so they're they're kind of legitimizing that this is the path out of this. I mean, it's sort of like... Yeah, like I mean, when you when you legitimize that the, the majority can vote its way into somebody's life, it's sort of like saying, well, if if you know my liver, my kidney, my lungs, my pancreas, etc., if I can save six people, then it's justified for me to be uh, put on the operating table and have them all extracted because there's a be- greater benefit to society. So that's kind of the the legal principle that's actually being. Um, normalized here is that um, as long as the, the opinion poll or the technocrats and the elites say that it's reasonable, they can essentially do this to us uh, unlimited at any time. JuliusRochelle.com, J-U-L-I-U-S-R-U-E-C-H-E-L.com. JuliusRochelle.com, his latest article uh, is a good one. And he's also the author of autopsy of a pandemic and he writes in his latest article again liberal democracy was built around the principle that individual rights must be unconditional in other words they are meant to to supersede the authority of government consequently individual rights such as bodily autonomy were meant to serve as checks and balances on government uh, on government power they were meant to provide a hard limit to what our governments can do to us without our individual consent If the government cannot override your rights to bend you to its will, then it will be forced to try to convince you by talking with you. That forces governments to be transparent and to engage in meaningful debate with critics. Your ability to say no and to have your choice respected is the difference between a functioning liberal democracy and authoritarian regime. So it uh, it it would appear, Julius, that we have lost our checks and balances. Uh, Is that because... Uh, our charter has proven to be practically worthless. Yeah, it's it's remarkable the way that the courts and the the politicians have essentially you know thrown out all the principles at the heart of the charter. I mean, there's they're finding ways to you know reinterpret the words in order to legitimize this, but the very, the principles at the heart of it are just being steamrolled left, right, and center. So, what is the problem? Is it the, what I call the weenie clause, section one? 
I think that's part of it. Although the weenie, like the the, the section one, the weenie clause, yeah, it's uh, it's meant to have all sorts of like there's a it's called the oak test, where in order to be able to uh, to temporarily restrict some of our rights for some kind of emergency, there needs to be a a, a public weighing of all of the evidence that to show that it's overwhelmingly in the favor of limiting the rights. And I mean, like the the oaks test is what it's called, and it's like a very burdensome process that was never done. So, I mean, technically, every single one of these mandates is illegal because they, they overruled the, the protections that are even in that section one that allows us as citizens to hold the government up to the light and say, okay, before you take our rights, show us the evidence that this is worthwhile. It's not up to the courts to simply decide that because the WHO says that it's this way, that it's okay to do this. It's not. So how do we... How do we prevent this madness from happening again? Do we need to revisit the charter and, I don't know, get rid of uh, get rid of the Section 1? Or is it the fault of activist judges? How do we prevent this? I think that it's, it, I mean, even the United States has, you know, they, they don't have a Section 1, and yet they still did the same thing. And so I think this is where the reality is that the public respect for the principles that are at the heart of our institution is what forces um, courts to rule in in favor of our rights, so that it, you know if the courts are caught up in like if the judges are caught up in this hysteria, they are also going to end up succumbing to it and finding ways to interpret it away. And so the, it really is a battle for the hearts and minds of you know our citizens as a whole to understand just how important it is to respect these kinds of individual rights if we want our democracy to continue to function. So like we have to make the hard choices where we have to go against our impulses to try to control our neighbors in order to maintain those checks and balances that keep us from going down these dark paths. Seems like we need serious civics courses in, in school. I mean, I know they have civics courses, but I don't know if they really instill in young people, um, you know, what a liberal democracy, a functioning liberal democracy means Very and, much so. and how we have them is hard work. And uh, we've just sort of let it slide because we've had it too easy. Um, is the remedy then only to be found perhaps at the ballot box? And we have to insist on electing provincial and federal governments uh, and hold their feet to the fire and, and, and make them promise to get rid of these emergency powers. I think that's one of the solutions, but I think it goes beyond that, that it has to, it really has to be that the, the public demands this as a, like you, we have to stick to the, like stick to these principles in everything that we do. Because if we wait until the ballot box comes along, we're back in a, in a situation where, you know, if, if the wrong party gets elected, then all of a sudden our rights are at risk. And so it actually makes it very difficult for anyone to accept the outcome of an election if you're, rights can be steamrolled by a party that you disagree with. The only way that a, a democracy works is that no matter who gets in power, they don't have the right to step over the line of steamrolling the individual. So I think that uh, we, we have a, a public relations battle to win on, on the ground level before we even get to the, the remedies that come through the courts and through the, the ballot box. In other, words, in other words, Julius, we need to change the culture. I mean, that is Very a long so. process. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what's been interesting about uh, what's going on with the truckers is that it's bringing these conversations to the forefront and accelerating that on a big way. You know, whether whether somebody's you know right not to hear honking outweighs being able to take away access to somebody else's life because they they disagree with the government about a vaccination or about a, a face mask. So I think that's this is sort of accelerating that cultural evolution that needs to happen. Great article, Julius. Thank you so much. I hope you'll join us again. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. JuliusRuchel.com. Julius, J-U-L-I-U-S, Ruchel, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, JuliusRuchel.com. He's also the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's time to try the tea everyone's talking about. Nothing does what Life Change Tea does. They have no competition. Life Change Tea helps support a healthy body. It tastes great and leaves you feeling refreshed every day. I can't get enough of my pomegranate super tea. I brew two gallons at a time and let it steep in the fridge overnight, enough to last me the entire week. And every morning I have a 16-ounce glass of this amazing GMO non-caffeinated herbal tea. It keeps me regular by providing a gentle cleanse every day. I'm never gassy or bloated, and good health begins with a healthy gut. This pomegranate super tea is not available in any store. You need to go to getthetea.com. Go to getthetea.com. Use the code UNLIMITED, and all your orders ship for free. All of them. It's time to get your tea from getthetea.com. This is disturbing. Embalmer has been alarmed by mysterious blood clots in vaccinated people. I made indications from many different sources of a dramatic rise in the sudden onset of serious illnesses following COVID-19 vaccination. A veteran embalmer, this is in the U.S., a veteran embalmer is reporting that he and more than a dozen colleagues in the industry have been noticing strange blood clots in most of their cases. Richard Hirschman, with more than 20 years of experience in the funeral industry in Alabama, says that in mid-2021, he began noticing odd blood clots in arteries and lungs he had never seen before. In an interview with Stephen Kirsch, Hirschman said that last month he found that 65% of his cases exhibited the clots. He told Kirsch that that every one of the 15 people in the industry with whom he has spoken have observed the same alarming trend. So this interview with Stephen Kirsch, Kirsch is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who has applied his skills in data analysis to the pandemic. And he's formed a group called the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation, and he serves as the executive director. So now I guess he's got maybe a YouTube channel and he's interviewing people, one of whom is this. Richard Hirschman, an embalmer, 20 years experience in the funeral industry. Hirschman said that with only one exception, he hasn't seen any cases in which the strange clots were seen in an unvaccinated person. The exception was an unvaccinated person who had received a transfusion. Kirsch notes the Center for Disease Control and Prevention contends that nobody has died from the COVID vaccines. But overall, Hirschman has seen the strange blood clots in more than 50% of his cases. And in January, uh, 37 of his 57 cases, 65% had the suspicious clots. Hirschman said that 15 peers with whom he had discussed the issue see the same phenomenon, but won't speak out publicly. PolitiFact, 
challenged Hirschman's, Hirschman's belief that the blood clots are caused by the vaccines. Fact checker Nassim Ferdowsi, who has no medical experience, said she was told by an embalmer in Phoenix, Arizona, that dark clots have been found in COVID victims long before vaccinations were available. However, the clots Hirschman is observing are white fibrous material. And Kirsch pointed out that the number of COVID deaths in Houston County, Alabama, where, where Richard works, is minuscule. In January, for example, there were nine recorded COVID deaths in the county. But Hirschman had 37 cases that month with the clots. If these clots were caused by COVID, it's highly likely someone would have spotted it before 2021 and done a similar video, Kirsch wrote. An embalmer alarmed by mysterious blood clots in vaccinated people. All 10 Canadian provinces, all three territories, had a perfectly fine pandemic preparedness plan in place before COVID, prior to 2020. Ontario had one going back to 2013. British Columbia 2014, Alberta 2014, Newfoundland going back to 2007, New Brunswick 2006, Nova Scotia 2013, Nunavut. How do they compare these pandemic plans we had in place prior to COVID. How do they compare to our actual pandemic response today? David Redman is a retired Canadian military lieutenant colonel, the former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and a senior fellow at Frontier Center for Public Policy. David, welcome. How are you? I'm outstanding. How about yourself? We're all hanging in as best we can. When you were the uh, head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, what was your responsibility? As the head of an emergency management agency, you're responsible for looking at all hazards that might affect a province and for developing a uh, an intelligence system to monitor any and all hazards and then to develop plans uh, that will address each of the hazards that are applicable to your province or territory. What led to all of these provinces suddenly enacting these pandemic plans? Was it in reaction to SARS from 2003? No. What happens in in every jurisdiction in Canada is, as I say, you monitor the hazards. So I was the head of uh, EMA back in 2004, 2005. It's a regular and ongoing process. So for instance, you see that the Alberta plan is dated uh, 2014. But back in um, 2005, we did the update of the plan. So the, these emergency plans aren't just written and put on a shelf. They're updated every 10 years. Uh, normally by law, it depends on each province what's required. But in Alberta, they were re- revitalized at least every 10 years. So what happened back in 2005, we had just been through a series of events in the province. But there was a new document released by WHO in 2005, which was the Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions Guidelines. And that caused Alberta to want to review its existing pandemic influenza plan. So we wrote an updated version in 2005, which after I retired was then updated again in 2014. So it's a regular ongoing process. And the purpose of those plans is so that when you're actually hit, for instance, in this case by a pandemic, you have a pre-existing plan that you should draw out, look at the exact virus that's hit you, because these were generic for all types of viruses, look at the specifics of the virus that you're encountering, and it allows you to then very quickly tailor the plan, release it to the public in a full written format, and then to actually implement that plan step by step. And with all that pre-work done, it allows you to do correct decision-making right from the start, but with a full governance task force. Were these plans designed only to address things like 
public health and let's say health sector communications, outpatient care, immunization, or did they look at the society as a whole, the functioning of society as a whole? Let me use the Alberta plan as an example, and you can make your own determination. There was four goals, overarching goals, the must-dos in the Alberta plan dated 2014. The first was to control the spread of the disease and reduce the illness by providing access to appropriate prevention measures, care, and treatment. That's goal number one. Goal number two, mitigate societal disruption in Alberta through ensuring the continuity of all critical services. Number three, minimizing the adverse economic impacts of the virus. And number four, supporting an effective and efficient use of all resources. I put it to you that we've done exactly the opposite and have not met one of those four goals because we obviously threw the plans away. Uh, Prevention, we did nothing. Mitigate societal disruption, we did the exact opposite. Minimize economic impact, we did the exact opposite. That's a big fail. The pandemic plan, as far as Alberta goes, I mean, some of the key elements here, prevention of a pandemic, mitigate social disruption, minimize economic impact. Let's just look at these first three. I mean, what happened between 2014, in your estimation, and 2020? Did they did they throw that one out the window and start from scratch? Was it the fog of war? Did they lo- they lost the thread? What happened, David? I believe that uh, in February and March of 2020, we knew exactly who was most at risk from COVID. It was our seniors over the age of 60 with severe and multiple comorbidities. In fact. We saw worldwide that 95% of all deaths up to the middle of March 2020 were in seniors with severe comorbidities. So instead of protecting our seniors, which should have been our number one aim, and not using non-pharmaceutical interventions, as had been clearly stated in our plans, we did exactly the opposite. And that was because our premiers took one look at what was happening in China and Italy, and they panicked. They forgot they had pre-written plans or chose to ignore them and place the medical officers of health in charge. You should never do that. The medical officer of health had one task and one task only, which was to try and run a proper healthcare system. And our aim in March of 2020, instead of being to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on the province, became to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on the healthcare system. A completely wrong aim, putting the doctors in charge, became the only aim. As the former head of the emergency management agency in Alberta, you must have been having fits when you saw the way Premier Kenny and other premiers were behaving through this pandemic. Did you have anyone's ear at that time? I was completely dumbfounded by what they did. I gave them two weeks in March to dig their way out of the mistake they'd made made by using non-pharmaceutical interventions for a type of virus that they had no effect on other than extremely negative. And then I started writing. I wrote all 13 premiers. I wrote them 12 letters over 12 months begging them to give me a two-hour call to step back from what they were doing or to at least let another voice into their office to explain why the use of non-pharmaceutical interventions are A, not effective, 
but be extremely dead. And we've seen results of that. But we knew that in September of 2019, who had just updated every five years the document on non-pharmaceutical interventions that we had first used back in 2005. It was very clear that for this type of virus, you should not use what we now call lockdowns, which is in fact a broad sweep of non-pharmaceutical interventions. So I to try to stop and listen to somebody with a completely different point of view. When they ignored me for 12 straight months, and that's 13 out of 13 premiers, I wrote a position paper, which you can find on Frontier Center for Public Policy, which I published on the 1st of July, Canada's deadly response to COVID-19, in which I state that it is criminal negligence what we have done by our premiers, MOH, and the Prime Minister. That was my next question. I was going to I was going to ask about criminal negligence. You know, we can excuse maybe perhaps some panic for the first couple of weeks, but not after 22 months. So panic no longer explains it. Absolutely correct. Well, I've been talking about a reckoning that must happen after all, when we finally crawl out from under this mess. There must be a reckoning. I don't know what you want to call it, a truth and reconciliation panel or criminal proceedings. I don't know. But what is the the remedy after? You know, I remember when after SARS and the doctor said, we learned so much from this and the politicians, we learned so much. And when we first heard about SARS-CoV-2, they said, that's all right. We got this. We learned so much from SARS. They learned nothing, obviously. But what is your remedy after we finally get out from under this? What should be the reckoning? It's going to take a while because the first thing we need to do is walk back the fear. As an officer in the Army and then as the head of EMA, I knew you never, ever use fear as a motivator in any type of emergency. And yet our politicians in MOH have used fear as the only tool in their toolbox. They have driven into the minds of all Canadians that, number one, lockdowns work. And they do exactly the opposite. They kill at least 10 times as many. In most studies, it's 100 times as many as any COVID deaths could ever have occurred. But number two, they also have inbred into Canadians that the only way out of this pandemic is with vaccines. Both those statements, lockdowns work and vaccines are the only way out, are two categoric mistruths. We need to walk back the mass formation which has happened to our Canadian public, which is now more terrified of a disease which for people under 60 is less risk than seasonal influenza. I'll say that again. For people under 60 without a severe comorbidities, comorbidities, this virus is less deadly than seasonal influenza, and Canadian statistics prove it, world statistics prove it, study after study after study. And yet, if you ask Canadians, they believe that COVID will kill them in a heartbeat if they don't lock down and if they don't wait for a vaccine to save them. David, if there is ever, well, there will be. It's not a question of if, it's when. The next time it rolls around, if you're not too beaten down and and frustrated, I I pray that you or someone like-minded We'll be in charge of the uh, the pandemic response the next time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. 
We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.